This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The governor takes formal positions on some of this year's big ballot measures. That's in our regular conversation at the state capitol. We sat down with Democrat John Hickenlooper yesterday. He told us he supports increasing the state's tobacco tax. He thinks it'll save lives, especially of low-income people. Another measure, he says, will benefit the working poor, an initiative to raise the state's minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2020. I'm not sure there's a, another way to help move more people out of poverty than to raise the minimum wage. If you look at the, how fast the, the, the cost of housing is growing in this community, our wages are a fraction of that. And I do have a strong uh, and abiding faith in, in, you know, in market economies and that, you know, that, that they make better decisions than we can make our, ourselves. But this is one of those exceptions where left their own devices, many people would be getting three or four bucks an hour if there was no minimum wage, just because you have in certain places a surplus of of labor. So I'm going to support this uh, initiative to raise the minimum wage. I'll say that the Colorado Restaurant Association has been opposed because this proposal doesn't raise the tip credit for tipped employees. You're a former restaurateur. How did you come to the decision to support this? Well, certainly the tipped credit was an issue, and I talked to restaurant owners in Seattle, one restaurant owner in Seattle, I talked to them. Where they raised the minimum wage. Where they raised the minimum wage. And, you know, based on the evidence you've seen there, while it's not a perfect uh, initiative, and I think there's, you know, few initiatives are, I think in this case, the good that it brings outweighs the the places where it's not the way I might have drafted it. I think in this country, if you work 40 hours a week uh, and you work hard, you ought to be able to afford an apartment somewhere. And right now, when you're looking at making 8 bucks or 9 bucks an hour, you really can't. And I think once we get it up to 12 bucks, people will have a much better chance of being able to afford an apartment. We talked about the other statewide ballot initiatives last month. You're opposed to the Universal Health Care Initiative. You strongly back the measure to make it harder to amend the state constitution. And you lean towards supporting most of the others. We have that conversation at cprnews.org. Anything else you want to take a firm stance on today in terms of ballot measures? Well, I, I did, you know, have spent a lot of time looking at allowing people who are terminally ill to be able to control those last months of their lives. and The end-of-life options act. Yeah, the end-of-life options. They're really, when you actually look into it, it's not about suicide. It's about these people are going to die anyway. They are terminally ill. Again, this is something that uh, I've had conflicts about it. But I think that that is something that that the state, maybe it's a libertarian streak in me, but when someone's going through a very difficult, uh, again, I saw a friend who had uh, ALS, and if they don't want to live those last months uh, for whatever their reason, uh, I think they should have that right to have medical advice medical supervision, be able to make sure that they get the, have the final say themselves. And so you're coming out in favor as well uh, in Prop 106? Yes. Okay. So to sum up, you are supporting the increase in the minimum wage, the medically assisted death uh, measure on the ballot, as well as the tobacco tax hike proposal. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. Uh, To a story now about mistreatment of people with developmental disabilities, Um, the Denver Post got a hold of a federal report about conditions at the Pueblo Regional Center. 
This is a state-run facility where residents reportedly had words like die and kill scratched into their skin, which some staffers chalked up to paranormal activity. Another resident exchanged a sexual favor for a soda. These allegations, I should say, date back more than a year and a half. Almost three years. Your administration did an investigation. Much of the leadership there is gone. But the Post's report says that as recently as April, federal investigators saw improper use of physical restraints that could have resulted in serious injury, also bruising and rug burns on a resident. What's going on at the Pueblo Center? Well, clearly the culture there had deteriorated to a level that is, is hard to imagine. You know, when I first got the, uh, the notification a year and a half ago about what had happened there, I, I just cannot believe that uh, these are people with, in, in some cases, very significant disabilities, and they were being used as, as objects, almost as if they weren't people. And I, I, this is one of those rare, you see a lot of things in this job, this is one of those rare times where I, would, I had nightmares for a couple of nights of uh, different variations of this. So we did. We, we, I mean, there's almost complete turnover of the staff, but that takes time. The leadership's turned over. Uh, many of the employees have turned over, but it is obviously the culture is still not where it needs to be. And somebody having a rug burn doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is a big deal. This is someone who's got a, a disability and is not able to defend themselves. In, in many cases, they have a hard time articulating their complaints. This is a place where we have to go above and beyond. I do want to say that that we are the ones, I mean, the, the folks at uh, Department of Human Services found out about this, and the moment they found out, they acted. They're the ones who wanted to make sure there was a full investigation, and they're the ones in the process now of getting an independent monitor to make sure that the, that the cleanup is complete, right, that we change the culture of the entire facility. I'll say that Medicaid pays for a lot of the care at the Pueblo Center, and the federal government thinks that things were so bad They want the state to return a year's worth of payments, potentially millions of dollars. Uh, The agency also has placed a moratorium on new patients there, according to the Post. We had set a moratorium ourselves, Ah. uh, again, until we get this right. So now we're both having moratoriums, which is, you know, now we can act in harmony. We're still negotiating with what the federal government, you know, what the consequences will be of this failure. Why should federal taxpayers absorb the cost of that poor care? I think that one of the reasons that a culture like this could exist is that the compensation for doing these very difficult jobs is very low. Reducing the resources for that care, in other words, that will come out of the care that we're providing going forward, is not going to in any way help those people with the serious developmental disabilities. We've tried to get more resources from the state to increase wages down there, to be able to hire you know, a better level of education, a better level of talent for the workers, but as you know, we are a low-tax state, and it's hard to find those resources. Uh, it's been very difficult to get more, more resources through the General Assembly. Having the federal government take away resources that we used to rely on just exacerbates that, that challenge. Uh, I understand there have to be consequences and punishment, but I'm not sure that those, that, that institution or those patients should be the ones that, that suffer the consequences. On the subject of consequences, last year, a group of lawmakers said they'd lost faith in the leadership at the Colorado Department of Human Services. Uh, the department has faced other controversies like violent treatment of youth in detention facilities, an overuse of strong psychotropic drugs for kids in foster care. You have defended the head of the department, Reggie Bika, in the past. Do you still? 
Yeah, this is stuff that happened three years ago. So I defended him last year. I'm still defending him. Again, I have set for him a very high standard, right? Let's make sure that this house cleaning, that we make sure that we change the culture, that it is done through to conclusion. And I understand that, again, the culture was through and through the, the entire organization. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper is our guest. He joins me regularly at the state capitol. You heard him there take several stances on ballot measures. At CPRnews.org, listen to debates we held about the minimum wage and medically assisted death proposals. And share your thinking about the minimum wage measure in particular. Text the word HELLO to 720-358-4029. Again, that's 720-358-4029. And if those numbers flew by you, all the info is at cprnews.org. All right, we'll pick up our interview with the governor in just a bit with why he made a political fundraising video that he then took down. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's return to my regular conversation with Colorado's governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper speaks with me regularly at the state capitol. You recently made a video asking other top Democrats to donate to a Democratic campaign fund meant to elect women. And you made the video in your office here uh, in front of the state seal. I am Governor John Hickenlooper, and I was challenged by Senator Kerry Donovan to donate to the DSCF glass ceiling challenge. And I'm donating 20 bucks because electing women matters. My personal ceiling breaker is Robin Pringle Hickenlooper. A conservative group called Compass Colorado cried foul after you posted the video on Facebook. Government officials in Colorado aren't supposed to use state resources to contribute to political campaigns. You later removed the video from Facebook. Why did you take it down? Well, we took it down because there was the, the state seal was kind of in the background. I mean, we made it off someone's iPhone. I mean, the idea... To be bluntly honest, I had no idea it was a partisan. I thought it was a, a video to encourage breaking the glass ceiling to get more women into politics. And nowhere in the, in the, in the video does it say the word democratic. The moment we, that we saw that it was, or the, that this office saw that it was a partisan issue and that we got that notification, we took it down. It was, a, it was an accident and a mistake. You know, it was up for maybe an hour. You know, sue me. It's, it, we're not going to be perfect, but... The moment we saw that, and I'm going to guess, I don't know how many people saw it, but it couldn't have been very many, but we took it down as quickly as we could. This was for the Democratic Senate Campaign Fund. So, and so what, we, what in the ad it says, it was the DSCF. DS. DSCF, the Democrat. But I didn't, you know, this was something that someone came in and said, can you do this? You got two minutes? I said, well, here, what do I have to read? That? Okay, sure. I did it. I don't think any of us understood that this was a, a partisan you know, video that we were making. We Should someone we were, have asked that? Yeah, sure. I mean, someone made a mistake. There's no question. Heads will roll. <laughs> well, let, let me ask about heads. Your administration disciplined a staffer two years ago for doing campaign work at the office. This isn't campaign work. This was an honest mistake that somebody made. It doesn't happen very often. This is, I mean, when was the last time that, that it was two years ago, whenever it was? Yeah, so uh, he'd use a state computer to send invitations to a political fundraiser. And your chief of staff wrote to all state employees at the time saying, if you violate this policy, disciplinary action will be taken. Right. Are you facing any disciplinary action in your own administration? For having relied on that this was a nonpartisan thing? Yeah. 
no, I don't think I'm going to discipline myself. I think it was an uh, honest mistake. It was not, I was not doing something I thought was political. And the moment we found out it was political, we took it down. My God. And this conversation with Governor Hickenlooper continues after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to my conversation with Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. We speak regularly at the state capitol. I want to talk about the outcome of the presidential race and how it could affect Colorado. If Democrat Hillary Clinton wins, she's expected to largely maintain the status quo, a continuation of much of the Obama presidency. If Republican Donald Trump wins, he says a lot will change. And let me tick off some of those things as they relate to the state. He says he'll deport the tens of thousands of immigrants who are illegally in Colorado. He says he understands communities that want to ban fracking. You've sued to stop those communities from doing so. Trump wants to ramp up coal production at a time when it's largely shutting down in this state. And he wants to renegotiate, if not totally get rid of NAFTA, the free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, Colorado's two biggest trading partners. How are you preparing Colorado, if at all, for a potential Trump presidency? I wonder if it changes anything for you as chief executive in terms of long-range planning. Well, when you read that litany, that list of options that might come about if Trump's elected, I have to say that the hair on the back of my neck stands up just because some of those we don't have responses for uh, if he's going to start deporting thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that's a very difficult. I mean, they own property. They're they're part of a community. You're gonna you're gonna tear apart families. Very hard to imagine how that works and doesn't in many ways harm the state. Uh, NAFTA, as you point out, uh, Mexico and Canada are two largest trading partners. I don't I don't understand why why would you totally you know say we're out we're throwing these away. Let's just say we're we're working on them and we're all gonna sit down and revisit them. Maybe there's a way to make them better. Uh, but it sounds like, uh, to some extent, that, that list I presented you uh, feels like new information to you. Not new information. It's information from which I don't have good responses. I, I think the one thing that is perhaps most perplexing is who knows what he'll really say after he's elected. Is, uh, is he really going to do these things? And certainly we are sitting down trying to make lists and look at it, but it's not easily accessible what our options are. You say you are sitting down and making sure, lists? Sure, of course. So that... I've, I've got a list. I mean, I have... What, what else is on it? Oh, my God. The, the uh, NAFTA's part, but then NATO, how do we work with that? We have our National Guard goes and helps train both in Europe and in, in Jordan. Again, strong allies of our country. Is that... Does that get upset by that? I mean, Donald Trump has talked about the United States' relationship with NATO and reassessing uh, what other nations are contributing to that alliance. Well, or, or demanding that they pay their share, which in a country like Jordan, obviously, would, would almost certainly eliminate our participation in the, in the training of their armed forces. Anything else on the list? I have to pull it out somewhere, but it, it's a, you know, it is a list that I don't think we'll ever get to because I can't imagine any one person would seriously imagine doing such things. But he, he said it, so we have to take it seriously. 
you, you can't imagine it. And yet I, he, he's, I said, he's I doing said, well in, in, in the polls, he, Donald Trump. Well, I'm not sure he's doing as well this week as he was doing last week. But you're right. He's, he's close enough so that I, as I go to bed, this list sits, you know, at home on my bedside table. And it, there's like six things on it, five things on it, I think, that we should have a response to, right? If, if, if he's going to start deporting people, what do we do with the families of the people left behind? Are, are we going to have to step up? And, and if those kids are 10 years old or 12-year-old, uh, are we going to have to figure out places for them to live? Is it, can the community accommodate that? And I, and I would also say your, your point that Hillary would be more the same. I think when, if you really listen to what she's saying, a lot of what she's saying is different. I mean, she's quite ambitious about actually getting comprehensive uh, resolution to our, our immigration problem. Governor, thanks for being with us. You know, always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper speaking with me Wednesday at the state capitol. In that exchange about NATO, he mentioned Jordan. Jordan is considered a major non-NATO ally. That's a specific designation under the alliance. And NATO forces are in Jordan training Iraqi troops. For his part, Donald Trump said Wednesday that he'll work to strengthen NATO, despite criticizing the alliance earlier in his campaign. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. School funding in Colorado is complicated. There's a joke that only about five people in the state truly understand it. A superintendent in rural northeastern Colorado is on a mission to change that. Jan DeLay is convinced that once voters understand why many districts are in a fiscal crisis, they'll approve a local property tax on the ballot. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Jan DeLay has one word to describe her school district's finances. Unsustainable. But she knows it will take more than one word to convince the public her schools need more money. Since last spring, DeLay's nights and weekends have been spent with community groups. They stare quizzically at her slideshow of charts and graphs and buckets. DeLay doesn't have a choice, really. That's because RE1 Valley District is one of two Colorado districts so far that have declared fiscal exigencies. That's a fancy way of saying there's simply not enough money to support the schools, and she's had to cut positions. Now that I see that the state isn't going to pick up and help us, I've got to let people know about this. DeLay tells the district's story to anyone who will listen. Today, it's the League of Women Voters. The more people who understand how the district got to this place, the more she believes she can build momentum for a $2 million local ballot measure to replace the state funding that was cut. Um, We've made cuts in athletics. We've made cuts in teaching staff. We've made cuts in our administrative staff. We have. um, She tells the group the district's cut back on the paper it uses. It's consolidated schools. It's bought used school buses off the Internet in Oklahoma. The district isn't alone. A record-setting number of districts are going to local voters this November, asking for a total of more than $4 billion to make up for state funding cuts. But Colorado's rural districts have had a tougher time passing local measures. Delay is open to suggestions. How do we explain some of these things to our voters, to our constituents that are pretty conservative out here in northeastern Colorado? People who are pretty down on government. Today, DeLay throws everything at this small group, and it's a lot to absorb. 
First, the amount the district gets per student from the state is low, about $5,000 per student below the national average. But a lot of other things are happening, too. Kids from farm families are growing up, moving away, and not being replaced by new bodies. That means money out of the district schools. But the main problem facing all of Colorado's 178 districts is the loss of state funding. They refer to this as credit card debt. Desperate to balance the state budget during the Great Recession, state lawmakers began slashing school budgets. They promised they'd pay it back. The problem is, is the state still doesn't have enough money to pay that back to school districts because of our increased burden with Medicaid. Is a lot That's right, Medicaid. Money that used to help pay the bills for this and other school districts now goes to the state's portion of Medicaid costs. Here, that means about $2 million less each year. And it's about 12% of an annual cut to most school districts, 12% of our budgets. I'm sorry, why? Because Delay is patient. This stuff is hard, partly because of very complex and conflicting constitutional amendments. I want the French dip. French dip. Backers of the ballot measure have their work cut out for them. Understand that my district is one of the most conservative districts in the state. This is State Senator Republican Jerry Sonnenberg. He's grabbing some dinner at the River City Grill in Sterling. He reflects a distrust of government in these parts, which schools are part of. We continue to grow government every single year as much as the law and Tabor allows us to grow it. We don't have an income problem in this state. We have a spending problem. This is when Sonnenberg is his most animated. He believes Colorado never should have agreed to a Medicaid expansion, which is consuming greater portions of the state budget. And while he grouses about government spending, he's also upset about Colorado's complex school funding formula that makes... Schools like Cherry Creek get more money per student than a school like Sterling. And that's unreasonable. A fourth of all the school districts in the state are in Sonnenberg's Senate district. He says the school finance formula needs to be fixed, and more money for schools should be a priority in the state budget. He says it's not now. But voters are also grumpy about taxes because they feel they were sold a bill of goods on the marijuana legalization ballot measure. Here's Alan Barton finishing up his dinner. I thought when we voted on the marijuana proposition that the the taxes were going to go to the schools. And nothing has been seen from that. In fact, a small sliver of the pot taxes is going to a small sliver of schools only for school construction and only if a district comes up with a 45 percent matching grant. I think, obviously, we got smoked by fine print on this last one, and things need to be more clear. Barton's wife, though, says she'd vote for a property tax hike. If it would go to the schools, yes. Many farmers are also wary. A young farm family is at a table nearby. The father, Justin, doesn't support the tax increase. He doesn't want to give his last name because he does business in this small town and worries about offending clients and others. The property tax increase on the ballot here would cost the average homeowner $72 a year. But if you're a farmer who irrigates with sprinklers, it will cost you $340. They don't want to pay any more taxes. And he says there's waste in schools. There's a lot of wasted money spent on a lot of frivolous things. I mean, sports are maybe too important ahead of curriculum. And these are all are the statutes that we must follow. Superintendent Jan DeLay is ready with props for any question voters have about waste. She uses the props to tackle the criticism that, well, school districts have just too much fat in the central office. 
Not so, says DeLay. It's been cut to the bone, to the point where there's no staff to file and track everything required by state law. She starts by holding up a finished book of school regulations. Colorado School Laws, 1995. Pretty small book. Uh, smaller than a Bible. Then she holds up the 2012 edition, much thicker. And the most recent, capturing all the new laws for testing, teacher evaluation, and the like. And then school laws, 2015, much larger than a Bible. More reporting requirements, she says, without money. Schools across Colorado are also grappling with rising health care, retirement, and transportation costs. And that's the end of this presentation, but I just want to say... At the end of Delay's presentation, the group doesn't have too many suggestions. It's kind of overwhelming. Jean Williamson thinks it was a good presentation. I think the biggest problem is that nobody really understands the tax situation in this state, including me. Now that the measure is officially on the ballot, Superintendent Jan DeLay can't campaign for it. She is allowed to continue her quest to help the public understand the murky world of school finance and why her district can't keep moving forward unless citizens step up to replace the state's unpaid credit card debt. And sometimes that is a lonely quest. But then that's just when I have to dig deep and say, you know what, superintendency is sometimes lonely. So buck up. (laughs) On November 8th, voters here, along with voters in dozens of other districts, will get their chance to weigh in on how much money is right for hundreds of Colorado's public schools. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. At CPRnews.org, Jenny takes on a, takes us on a trip inside one of DeLay's schools. We'd like to offer a clarification to an election year story that we brought you earlier this week about a measure that would allow unaffiliated voters to take part in party primaries and caucuses. One of our guests said they already can. They just have to affiliate, which they can do the day of. That is not the whole picture, however. Unaffiliated voters can join a party the day of a primary, but with presidential caucuses, voters have to affiliate months in advance. And that was a source of surprise and frustration to some this year. Finally today, the Denver Philharmonic starts its new season Friday, and the musicians will play on a stage that's newly named for a musical trailblazer. Antonia Brico was one of the first female conductors in the United States. This is a recording of an orchestra led by Brico, who founded what became the Denver Phil in 1948. Before that, she was the first woman to stand on the podium and conduct the New York Phil. Antonia Brico was really a pioneering woman uh, conductor. Lawrence Golan is music director of the Denver Phil. You, you know, even today, uh, female conductors are less common than male conductors. Grand opening of the Antonia Brico stage is Friday. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at listener-supported CPR News.